This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm your host, Norman Lau, and as you may know from his notes in the Babel Conference, Christopher has rearranged the deck chairs a little bit on the network, and he has graciously promoted me to the host position of Warp 5, and I'm very thankful. I'm incredibly honored to continue the work that he's done for all of our listeners, and I'm excited to have him rejoin us here in the Decon Chamber when he can. But our guest star here today is Will Nguyen, our new content coordinator for Trek FM, and it's his first appearance in the decon chamber. Will, how are you? I'm glad to be here. I'm a little cold because I'm wearing these uh, blue undershirts and blue shorts, but aside from that, I'm feeling pretty good. Well, don't expect me to open up a can of gel anytime soon. This is the first time we've been together, so much like the first series, it might be a little shocking, but we'll get through it. Oh, we will. So today, um, Will and I were a little bit on the same page here when we started talking about content. Since he's our new content coordinator, he wanted to see what my ideas would be for the first show. And even with Christopher, I said, you know, looking at the backlog of all the great stuff that we've done, we haven't actually focused on one particular cast member. And this would wrap up the entirety of the cast member profiles, and that would be Travis Mayweather now. Travis is, uh, he didn't really get a lot of attention during the course of the four years, but he did play in a pivotal role as the primary watch helmsman or the pilot for the NXO one. Now, just to go back a little bit for maybe some of the listeners who are watching Enterprise for the first time and maybe haven't gotten through the entire series. Obviously, you know that the Enterprise was Starfleet's first and finest vessel. It was the first Warp 5 capable ship. But that type of technology demanded a really unique and highly skilled pilot. And these pilots were being groomed, obviously, in the class of 2151 to be part of the NX-01 program. And, of course, Archer would have a little bit of a say-so in picking his pilot. Uh, so he picked Travis Mayweather. Now, Travis had the unique distinction of being what was known as a boomer. And a boomer, as described in the Enterprise universe, it was somebody who was born on these really long cargo runs that were run by the Earth Cargo Service. So again, he logged in a lot of star hours. He had a lot of natural skill. He was born in space. He had pretty much everything on the resume to be the right pilot. But was he always the best choice? Was Archer always going to choose him based just solely on his piloting skills, solely on being a boomer? And... Was it just about skill? Was it just about having natural ability? Or did something, you know, did Archer have a little bit of a twinkle or a sparkle in his eye saying, you know, this kid's something special? Will, what do you think about that? 
I think it was definitely a combination of both. I think to be even be considered to be the helmsman of the NX-01, the pride of Earth Starfleet, you're going to have to be qualified on your ratings, on your performance evaluations, on the on the technical aspects of piloting such an advanced ship. So I think right off the bat, you know, Travis would have to be at the top or near the top of his class in terms of those qualifications. That So I, I would imagine that would be the baseline. But at the same time, I think because he was a boomer, because he came from that perspective of he's been in space, he actually hasn't been to Earth. You know, the first time he tasted strawberry shortcake the fir- for the first time was in San Francisco. He grew up in space. That's all he knew. The fact that he was with the Earth Cargo Authority for so long, that perspective of being out there on a ship that isn't pristine, isn't clean, isn't top of the line, things break down, you're going to have to adapt and adjust and improvise. I think that ability, that experience was that intangible X factor that Archer wanted in his helmsman. And I think it was very telling, I think, in the the, the marquee Travis episode, Horizon, when Archer was telling uh, Travis why he selected him. He referenced the letter that his father wrote to Archer when he reached out to all the former commanding officers of all the, of the finalists. He reached out to them, and the father essentially said, he's the most natural stick and rudder man I've ever seen, and you'd be the fool not to pick him. And... Obviously, Travis was was emotional when he heard this because he had a rocky relationship with his father. He never heard that type of admiration or that type of pride uh, spoken to him directly. So to hear Archer say that to him, that he was informed by his father, that he had this intangible X factor, I think that's what pushed Archer over the line to choose Travis Mayweather. You know, the neat thing about Travis was that he never really pushed that aspect of him being a boomer it was always kind of teased about him with you know some of the uh, older crewmen now he was i believe he was the youngest crewman on the on the primary bridge crew and again it was because of his experience in deep space and being able to log in all those deep space hours on the ECS horizon that gave him the advantage of being picked by Archer so let's talk a little bit about what this cargo service was all about the kind of stresses that it would put on somebody, the kind of challenges that it would put on somebody like Travis. Because you're right, it was it was nicely referenced by you that, you know, he wasn't born on Earth, he was born in space. And obviously that would give him a unique perspective on thinking differently when it comes to being on a starship. Because you're right, he wasn't on this pristine, highly technological ship like the NX-01, he was on basically this hauler, uh, very akin to the DY or D, um, the DY-100 or DY-500 class that you saw in the original series that was hauling probably one of the most famous characters in Star Trek, which was Khan Noonien Singh. These were just giant, dirty, mucky cargo haulers that had to function and they had to perform because it had to bring cargo of any type from one side of the universe to the other side of the universe, and they had to get paid. This is actually one of those really nice aspects in Enterprise where you saw something other than Starfleet when it came to starships. And I'm not talking about like the alien ships like you saw with um, the Vulcans or the Andorians or 
uh, the Zindi, and we're talking about an Earth ship. It wasn't sophisticated. You know, it wasn't the floating hotel that we came to know, you know, in Star Trek The Next Generation. This was basically um, an oil tanker in space, and it had to get from one side of their route to the other. What do you think along the way would prepare someone like Travis from a from when he was a kid to when he entered Starfleet um, and gave him the skills to to apply that to uh, being a candidate for the NXO one program? It's a good question, Norm. I think probably just being able to to make do with limited resources, you knowing how to take apart something, put it back together, and then take it apart again, and then take out a crucial part and then try to make it work with another jury rigged part because you might not have that part again or might be damaged or I think just the ability to to improvise. I think that was clear in Horizon, but I think it was also clear in another early season one episode, Fortunate Son, where they meet um, the other cargo ship and you get the, the sense that, you know, going to warp one was a big deal for them. You know, it, let alone warp five, right? Going to warp one, warp one point two, one point three, it was a big deal. You you could feel the bumps, you could feel, uh, you know, the the jolting around, right? So it it took all of these um, different skills to make sure the ship ran. I think the fact that uh, Travis mentioned that his mother was a chief engineer, but was also the medic on the ship, and that his father at one time held. The record for the most uh, positions simultaneously. He was the captain, but he was also the engineer. He was a probably the ship, you know, the ship's cook too. He was probably, uh, you know, the mentor. He was probably uh, he was probably the armory officer too. So the the fact that you need to you needed to know how every different aspect of the ship worked, from engineering to uh, astronavigation to the actual piloting to uh, environmental control, first aid, all of these things you really need to have expertise in because who knows what's going to happen? Who knows if you're going to be raided by a pirate or who knows if your engine's going to break down and you're going to be the person that needs to to figure this out because the other person's injured or they're busy with another uh, fire drill that they can't be able, they won't be able to respond. So you're going to have to be responsible for that. So I think in my mind, in my own personal headcanon, I think Travis is almost that jack of all trades. He can assume Malcolm Breed Station if he had to. He could uh, probably couldn't do Hoshi's job, but obviously he could do probably uh, do a stint down in engineering, knowing kind of the basic uh, ins and outs of warp design and all those other operations aboard the ships. I think that was what Archer was looking for. And I think just being able to, to have that depth of experience is useful uh, for the Annex 01. And, you know, the shame of it is, I think if we actually had more seasons of Enterprise, we probably would have been able to see the writers tap into that type of talent. Because you're right, because he grew up basically having to know almost every single aspect of running the cargo hauler, because as we know, these were passed down from family line to family line and family line, so that this was their home, this was their turf. This is If, if it wasn't going to float, they had to fix it. And it, it brought a really nice sense of tangibility to why Travis cared so much. Because he was, he was really a fiercely passionate character about his crewmen and about the ship. And I think that they really nicely touched that aspect of it in Fortunate Son, where he had to make that decision between being 
part of the Cargo family or being part of the Starfleet family. And I think that you see that uh, throughout the course of the four seasons where I think he really wants to dig deep, not just to show off his merits, but to show off how much he cares about protecting his crew and in doing so, relying on his skill to do that. But we knew Travis from being someone who was the probably the one candidate or the one pilot in the NX-01 program that's been furthest out into space than anybody else. That gave him, his, obviously, his a little bit of his edge. But when he was able to travel further than anyone else, than any other cargo run during the course of their primary mission, everyone pretty much became the furthest journeyman into space. And Travis really couldn't sit back on that laurel of being the furthest traveled. So what made him, I think, a little bit more special was his instinctive ability to be that stick and rudder man that Archer was talking about. And I think that he probably came up with many of the maneuvers or many of the offensive capabilities or defensive capabilities of a pilot that will eventually translate into the helmsman journals that, say, Sulu or, well, when Geordi was pilot Geordi, or any of the helmsmen of the Enterprise later on as the different ships were introduced. These were kind of like the exploits of this great pilot that everyone was able to study. I mean, do you think that Travis was, you know, thoughtful enough to be able to say, you know what, this is this maneuver that I tried, this is how I got out of that situation, and preserve these logs, much like Captain's Logs, so that generations of helmsmen past him or in the future would be able to learn from his experiences. I think that's definitely true. I, I can just imagine a scenario right now. Maybe David Mack or uh, Keith Dedanado is going to create a new uh, book about Travis Mayweather's logs and you'll have, uh, it'll be set in the next generation, you'll have a, a cadet William Riker reading the historical logs of Travis Mayweather and his famous pioneering uh, flight maneuvers or his famous pioneering um you know operations i th- i think that's you know i think that's a fair uh fair assessment to make that i'm sure that as the first helmsman that he would have to have come up with some pretty slick maneuvers to to get out of the nebula or to to escape the sulaban or to to get out of the to get out of a jam quickly and then i think what's also important too is whenever uh the nx01 launched uh an away mission Travis was always the one piloting the shuttle pod, right? So, you know, he's always right, so yeah. in addition mm-hmm. to the NX01, he's also in a shuttle pod. He's almost kind of like that that crack pilot that uh that Riker was in terms of a shuttle pilot that Jordy was. Just being able to be proficient almost behind any console, behind any um flight control mechanism, I think. I think uh, was important to Travis, and I think that was that innate ability uh, that Archer was looking for. And I think it would been it would have been neat somewhere along the line to because they do pay a lot of nods to the future series and Enterprise here and there. I mean, we've seen the Borg in there. The, sorry, spoilers. We've seen the Borg in there. We've seen the Nausicaas in there. It would have been neat to have seen some type of small little reference to like, well, hey, maybe we'll call that the Mayweather maneuver or the Travis maneuver i.e. kind of like mirroring the famous Picard maneuver, you know, later on. So I think it's um, I think it's safe to say that almost every crewman, like from Hoshi to Flocks to Trip, because 
they are so breaking the ground on on shaking down the NX01 that it would behoove them to write these down in their logs to preserve this for you know future crews or not even so so far in the future i'm sure that travis could have sat down with the primary watch helmsman of the columbia you know at the 602 club and say hey you know what if you throttle back a little bit or if you just paid attention to the deck plating as it was going into warp three or if you did this or if you did that that could have probably paid dividends to that to that new helmsman because he was the first I think that's one thing that gets glossed over a lot, that Travis and all of these other crewmen, these were the first. These were your first Scotties, your first Sulus, your first Uhuras, your first Chekhovs, you know, Kirks, Spocks. These are, they were all the archetypes of all of the Star Trek characters, by and large, the archetypes of all the Star Trek characters that you knew and loved in the original series and moving forward. So, unfortunately, we never really got a chance to see him mature that way, but to pay respect and to give credit where credit is due Travis really was the one behind the scenes where you know when the Enterprise had to get out of a jam or when they had to do some serious you know shake and bake trying to get the Zindi off their tail that was him that was all him I mean Archer wasn't telling him how to do it or where to go or what to do give me the mark give me the coordinates and he just did it by instinct and so he may have been the most naturally gifted pilot in the graduating class. He may have been uh, the one that Arch was looking for, but obviously throughout the course and the experience of him over the four years that we saw him, you know, it, it, it was, of course, the right choice because Archer had that instinct, like the way that you brought it up, that stick and rudder man. So speaking of Archer, you brought up in the notes first flight, and Archer was the test pilot. He and A.G. Robinson were the two test pilots for the NX program trying to shake down, was it the Warp 2 engine? And because of their experiences as test pilots, obviously they have the experience to fly an NX-class starship if they needed to. What do you think throughout the course of what Archer learned through AG that he was able to pass on to Travis in those scenes that we didn't see in his writer room, because, you know, as as all fandom does, we, we try and project the scenes that we didn't see, the, the moments that weren't captured. And, of course, there was that really great scene in Fortunate Son where he had to kind of shake down Travis a little bit and say, like, hey, you know, I need you on my team. You know, I know that you're going to question my orders. And very tongue-in-cheekly, Archer's like, anything else you need to question? But it was a nice... It was a nice scene of being both captain, friend, and advisor all kind of like in the same package. And I think that's something that Travis really needed because he was, as far as I know, he was the only crewman that was on the command track, i.e. wearing the command gold on the bridge. So something, there's obviously there was a mentorship in Archer there. And what do you think those conversations may have consisted of? Yeah, I think it's fun to speculate. I think it's a, it's a very natural uh, conclusion to make that Archer saw a lot of himself in Travis and that he really took on that mentorship role. I think it's it's unfortunate that we never got to really see any of that. But I think it's very clear looking at the the history of Star Trek in its entirety. You know, you have Hikaru Sulu um, going from the helmsman position, eventually become captain. Obviously, his daughter, Demora Sulu, does the same thing. 
I believe Riker also starts off as a pilot, as a helmsman, and it eventually moves on to command. So you see that as the beginning of that maturation, that beginning of that grooming for command. So I would imagine that, you know, Archer would just tell Travis to, you know, trust his instincts, but at the same time be able to to learn, be able to adapt, um, and that, you know, since they are the first humans, the first crew out there experiencing these things, that there is no rule book. There is no, uh, there's no one they can uh, turn to. They can't just turn their academy instructor because the academy instructor hasn't been out as far as they have. So they're going to have to really write it as they go. And that's going to require a lot of internal fortitude and in, uh, internal discipline that I think Archer probably told Travis to 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 hold on to and to kind of develop um, I think if Enterprise had been picked up for additional seasons it would have really benefited from almost a lower decks type episode like a next generation where you saw the rest of the crew that would be very fascinating to see the dynamic because I think this is one of the few instances where we see enlisted ranks in terms of crewmen we have a really uh, a different mm-hmm. insignia on the uniforms it had been really interesting to see. Again, this is my own personal headcanon. I would imagine, I would imagine a lower decks type episode revolving around uh, a small group of potential helmsmen, of which Travis is the first. He's probably the shift supervisor, but there are probably other gold division, command division crewmen that obviously rotate in spots. And you know, there's kind of a competition between who's going to be the best helmsman, who's going to learn. And I think that would been a great opportunity for for Travis to have demonstrated the leadership skills they learned from Archer in terms of kind of now he's kind of like the senior uh, officer or he's the senior experienced one out of this uh, this group of helmsmen, right? So he's the one that's kind of showing them the ropes now. He's the one that's saying, hey, you know, when I was up there for this mission, this is what I should do. And I was in your shoes only a year ago or a few months ago. And I think that'd be really interesting to kind of see that perspective. But I think as you mentioned before, um, a lot of what fans do is try to fill in those gaps because unfortunately it wasn't shown on screen. But I think it's a pretty safe uh, assumption to to say that Archer would have played that mentor role for Travis. And, you know, he, one of the things that, I mean, we've been talking about Travis as the character this entire time, but one of the things that was special about him and made him very memorable, I think, is Anthony Montgomery's portrayal of him because what he did was he brought a lot of optimism to the character. When you actually watch him act, I mean, of course you have the standard, you know, he has to deliver his lines and he has to um, make sure that the character is speaking in uh, with his uh, believable, you know, dialogue that the, the script writers are writing for him. But when you really watch him act, he's the kind of character that always looks the most earnest because I think that, again, being the youngest bridge crew member, he's the one that I think is trying to prove himself most. And there's just something that, that Anthony always brings to the table when it comes to just having this wide-eyed approach to, oh my gosh, I'm in space. And I'm piloting the basically the finest starship that the human race has ever created. What am I going to do with this? You know, how am I going to accept this responsibility? And I think he and Travis are actually very synonymous because I've seen Anthony in 
his interviews and the Blu-rays and the special features. And again, he has that really just bright-eyed and optimistic and very positive approach to almost anything that he does. I've heard Garrett Wang is very much the same way. I heard that he's the guy that is just full of passion and brings Star Trek fans together and always kind of like just promotes how positive and how uh, communal, you know, our fan base is. And that's the way that I see Travis almost in all of like the behind the scenes that he gets, you know, in the in the ready room or in the commissary or in um, in med in the med lab or even the decon chamber. He always seems to have like this. Hey, guys, what's going on today? How can we just further the human race even more with this amazing craft that they've pretty much put under our command? He's very um, chipper. Do you find he is very chipper? And again, he's it's it's nice to have that because. In almost every incarnation of a Star Trek series, there's one or two characters where the audience says, you know what, I'm him or I'm her, and I can understand and relate to this person. Therefore, I can relate to the show a little bit better because they're all going out and experiencing these things for the first time, and I'm experiencing it through this vessel, through this avatar that's Hoshi, for one. And I think Travis for the other, because they were the ones that were, again, um, I think they were thrust into these situations without having the, the polish or the background of a careered Starfleet officer like, like Reed, you know, or even Archer. I mean, these are, these, again, these are officers who have been from generations and generations of, of military men, or at least within Starfleet. So I think that because Travis is bringing this really honest and um, open-minded approach to being a boomer and saying, hey, you know what? Space is vast. Space is awesome. Space is whatever it is, and I'll, you know, I'll take it as it comes. I think that's how some viewers actually latch into watching Enterprise. Now, as a Deep Space Niner, um, you're coming into Enterprise pretty much as a new viewer. Do you feel the same way? I mean, do you... Do you see him and say, hey, you know what? I can relate to what he's going through as a very new first comer of the show. Yeah, that's a good question, Norm. Um, I see a lot of Nog in him, actually. Um, because when you think about it, you know, Nog was the first Ferengi in Starfleet. Travis, pretty much the first helmsman to go to deep space for Starfleet. Uh, ironically enough, you know, I think it's very telling that Nog as a secondary character got more character development than Travis did. I think large part because Deep Space Nine had more seasons, had more time to develop that character. But if we were to draw those parallels, and especially for me being a Niner, I could definitely see um, a lot of Nog in Travis. Maybe uh, not the same level of earnestness. I think with Nog you had an earnestness of being also a fish out of water, of being the Ferengi and trying to be accepted. So for Travis it was a little bit more understated, but He's definitely the type of, you know, he, you know, he's a little boy, right? He is a little boy piloting literally a spaceship, a rocket ship to go into deep space. You know, how exciting is that? And he does come off with that infectiousness of just being optimistic, right? Um, one thing I would have liked to have seen is, you know, we, we had seen that his biography was alluded to in terms of being a boomer. I think it'd been really interesting to see you know, him remarking about 
how the NX01 was just so much different than the ECS Horizon, right? Making those comments about like, you know, I think he, he did make some of those comments about, you know, his boomer days and this and that, but if, I would have liked to have seen more of that contrast of just being like, you know, this ship really is something, you know, we, the bucket of bolts I used to be on could barely do warp point one without, you know, blowing a gasket, but this can just seamlessly move so quickly and everything is just so state of the art. And I think that brings up another point that I wanted to bring up about uh, the boomer angle is I think when I watched the episode Horizon and Fortunate Son, you know, you saw a lot of echoes of Battlestar Galactica in it uh, in terms of it was darker. Uh, there are more civilians on there. Uh, they're wearing more contemporary clothes, work overalls. And I think that was intentional in a lot of ways, too, because I think Enterprise at this point was airing concurrently with Battlestar Galactica, or at least some iteration of it, the new, uh, the new version of it. And you could just tell that, you know, these ships were, you know, they were dank. They, uh, people, people sweated, they worked, they had a, you know, they had a cargo bay that was dirty and messy. You really could see that it was the exact opposite of even the 22nd century Starfleet, let alone the 23rd and 24th century. And I think because that was, I think, the perspective that a lot of people were wishing the, the new series would have taken. I think a lot of people thought that uh, a prequel series set uh, before Kirk, 150 years before Kirk, was going to be a lot more primitive than what we saw. I think a lot of people, with their expectations, it was kind of thrown out of whack. So in seeing uh, the civilian ships in Horizon or Fortunate Sun, it was almost a glimpse into kind of what perhaps some people thought Enterprise was going to be. It was going to literally be very it's gonna be darker it was gonna be uh, a lot more tough in terms of just space travel it was going to be uh it wasn't going to have the same types of familiarities that we had with the annex one where you know the the pulse phasers the pulse cannons the the hull polarizations you know although it was still primitive there were still elements of it that you could recognize as star trek so I think it was really interesting to see that boomer angle because for me, coming in as a relatively new fan, I think that was a glimpse as to what some fans thought Enterprise should have been or could have been in terms of being much more primitive than what we saw with the NX-01. But I think there were other considerations. I think the studio wanted something a little bit more recognizably Star Trek. And I think that's not necessarily a bad decision. I liked uh, what they ended up doing with the the NX-01 and that type of design. But I think a lot of people, in terms of their expectations, uh, seeing the NX-01, seeing that type of uh, technology, took some getting used to if they were going to buy that this was before Kirk. Yeah, and I, we talked about this earlier before the show. I think one of the things that Enterprise fans are dealing with, either former Enterprise fans or current Enterprise fans and now the new Enterprise fans that are watching it over the Blu-rays or Hulu or however you want to get it on, you know, online, it's the potential of where this series was going under Manny Cotto and how I think he was finally striking a balance, writing well for all the characters and not just some of the characters. Mostly in, in Star Trek, because they're ensemble casts, you get to see some of the characters obviously get a little bit more 
you know, of the uh, bigger slice of the pie, if you will, when it comes to the chewing the scenes or getting the dialogue or getting focus. But I think that there was um, a nice little stretch of um, more Travis development, uh, especially with um, his quote unquote kind of secret girlfriend. Um, the one who was working for, uh, I think she was working for Section 31. Starfleet Intelligence. Oh, yeah. oh was it Starfleet Intelligence? And you saw, okay, so you saw a little bit more of his backstory, which I think is fantastic. I did, so uh, yeah. I think there was a, that really great line, uh, and I really liked the, that character too, Gannett Brooks, the, the reporter. She had Gannett, a line, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, or I think it was Travis reciting what he, she had said to him before. I think the line was, exploration was like the exploration is the last vestige of colonial impulse or something like that. And I thought that was really neat because it, that is a very almost modern day perspective or layer of analysis that I could easily see uh, an op-ed columnist making that type of argument about the exploits of the NX-01 or long-term exploration of Starfleet, I could see them making that type of argument, and it was it, for me that one line really grounded uh, the universe of the Enterprise, meaning that there were still people back then that wasn't that weren't sold on the fact that we were going into the stars, right? You know, I think oftentimes, you know, we're in the perspective of the audience, we're on the bridge, we we're already sold on the fact that humanity should be out there, right? So that one line. For me, and I think a lot of the the storyline behind Terra Prime was there actually are an entire segment of the population that feel that, why are we going out there? Why are we doing this? We, we should just stay home, mind our own business, humans first, right? I think for me, it really grounded the universe, and I, and I agree with you. Season four really started to, to hit home those storylines of kind of bringing it back towards how does Enterprise still relatable to our perspective, if it's the chronologically, the the series that's closest to us, right? And I think that was a really great line because that's a type of editorializing that I could easily see happening now. And it's interesting that you bring that up because when we go all the way back to Horizon, which was probably one of the first, I'm sorry, Fortunate Son, which was one of the first real Travis-centric episodes, there was that scene, again, There was it was an advisory scene with Archer where he says, you know what? Why are we getting into their business? You know, they have their own life, and we don't really have the right to interject on their life. We're Starfleet, their cargo. Our businesses really shouldn't conflict the way they are. We, as Starfleet, are interjecting ourselves into the way that they're doing business. Now, of course, Archer was taking the higher moral stand because of, of the prisoner that was on that ship, but... Travis, because he was born on these ships, he understands, like, you know what? We take care of our own. We take care of business on our ship. Our ship is almost kind of like a sovereign nation. Starfleet has no jurisdiction over our business. But, again, those are the kind of scenes that I think if we were able to get more of them would really kind of unlock that untapped potential that Travis had as the character that we would be able to grow with. Because I think in some respects, he still held on to the loyalty of being part of this special group of boomers, this special group of cargo runners, because it's his family. You know, he 
you can't turn, you know, he would never, and this is, I think this is in character, uh, in character of Travis and in my own head canon. Yes, he had to make a decision between his own family and his Starfleet family. But I think that when push came to shove, he would be able to understand both sides of the, the equation, both sides of the argument, and at least give Archer a little bit better advice than, say, Reed, who would say, like, you know, they're violating Starfleet this, they're violating Starfleet that. We have to go in there with fully charged phasers and take over. That's not, again, that's Travis Lang, that's not your business. You don't have that right. And he has that in him. He has that part of his character that we just don't get to see enough of. And I think as the Federation was starting to form, and if we got into the Romulan War, I think that Travis would have been able to flex a little bit more of that independence because he has that perspective of whether or not are we stepping over the line. And I think because he was on the command track, he had that right to speak up for himself. Yeah, you're right. I think he could have very been he could have very well been the conscience of the crew in a lot of ways. I think going back to to Deep Space Nine, you know, Bashir was always the conscience of the crew there. He was always saying, mm-hmm. you know, this is not what we joined Starfleet to be. This is not what our morals and our values are. And I could easily see a scenario where if there was a Romulan War storyline, Archer is forced to do some some unsavory things. I could easily see Travis saying, and it could be one of those really great pivotal moments of him really becoming his own person, becoming his own man, saying, this is not what I joined up for Starfleet. This is not what I joined Starfleet to do. We, we're not these people. We're not going to cross that line. You know, he, at his core, still has that idealism, right, that perhaps it's a little too wide-eyed at the beginning, but over time it gets tempered, but he never really loses it. And I could... That would have been a great storyline to really to see if he could have been that that conscience that you know that idealism that checks that cynicism that we kind of see in later seasons. But it would also be kind of neat to see him grow from again being this wide-eyed and optimistic type of character to being a little bit more seasoned and and um, investing the advice that Archer has given him over time. There's always an episode where it's kind of like the one to grow on moment where. Uh, a character is challenged by a certain ideal or philosophy that he's not truly comfortable with. But then when you weigh all the options and you weigh the experiences of the situation, they come out um, being tested or being forged in that crucible and not being the character that you fell in love with at the beginning, but the character you start respecting more and wanting to see more evolution through that character, wanting to see like, where is this person going to go? How are these new experiences going to affect him later on in, in, in further seasons? But unfortunately, um, we never really got that chance. And I think that a lot of Enterprise fans will agree with us when they say that it was really just starting to get its true sea legs. And uh, I think Travis was probably going to be a huge part of that moving forward. Um, again, with all of the other crewmen like Hoshi, she would have gotten a little bit more of a piece um, I think that the uh, the balance between Trip to Paul and Archer probably would have uh, anchored the show, but you would have seen a lot more of the secondary characters get built up. So, um, and probably no one uh, laments that fact more than Anthony Montgomery himself, because he would have gotten a lot more uh, acting time under the belt and a lot more uh, residuals on the uh, reruns. So <laughs> that's, that's very true. <laughs> just to, I, I, to, you know, just to throw a little business in there. I, I saw him actually at a convention this past summer, and uh, you know, he had that. It's almost, it's almost like the, he, 
the character of Travis was turned up to 10 or 50. He was just so enthusiastic and just loved the fans, but you could just see that he really wanted that role to develop. And you could really see it on stage that he understood. Like, yeah, I get what you guys are saying. I want to I want to see more of me. Right. So, you know, it was his enthusiasm on stage was definitely infectious. And um, just to just to kind of um, paraphrase your last notes here and the final thoughts. So um, you said traffic is the perfect metaphor for the show as a whole. I agree with you. I think that uh, as the show grew, he grew and vice versa. You want to see more Travis and you want to see more Enterprise. Well, I think for all of our fans that are listening, don't we all? Because um, I think that it was a show, again, I'm probably just repeating what we said before in other shows, but it was a show truly that uh, had the markings of of a great series and uh, it had a cast that was starting to mature. It was a, They were starting to gel and they were starting to get that timing down that uh, usually happens around the third and fourth seasons of a show. And unfortunately... Uh, our mission was cut short. So, um, so in closing, um, I just wanted to say, well, thank you so much for being a guest here in the decon chamber. I think, uh, I think that since we, we did without the gel this time, I think, I think that, uh, Flox is okay and, uh, unlocking the doors and letting us roam back to the bridge. But, uh, when you aren't uh, helping out the ECS horizon, haul cargo on the Dralax Vega run, how can our fans and listeners get a hold of you? Um, sure, you can find me on Twitter at at will underscore win. Uh, it's spelled N G U Y E N, and of course you can find me in the Babel Conference, which is our dedicated listener group on Facebook for Trek FM. I'm also an associate producer for the Orb Earl Grey and Literary Treks, and I think as you mentioned at the start of the show, I'm also Trek FM's new content coordinator. So if you have any ideas for future content or topic ideas or issues or areas in which you would like us to kind of talk about on any of the shows, uh, feel free to tweet me or you can shoot me an email at will.win at trek.fm. Now, how did you come about discovering Trek FM? Um, because since you are an associate producer for several shows, that comes with being a supporter of Patreon. Was that how you uh, were introduced to the show or did you find that before you uh, sponsored Patreon? It was actually even before Patreon. So uh, it was actually through a friend of mine uh, who actually just joined the group uh, two days ago. His name's Jake Bennett. So I'm giving you a shout out, Jake. Uh, me and Jake are actually part of another Star Trek group uh, called the AV Club. So the AV Club is an offshoot of The Onion, uh, you know, the satirical newspaper. So they have a pop culture offshoot where they do reviews on, on TV shows and movies. So they actually did reviews on the original series, Next Generation, DS9, um, and they had a very robust comment board. So all the commenters, af after the reviews were done, they kind of formed a uh, an expatriate Facebook group. And there we continued the discussion that we had on the discussion board. So it was there that Jake was talking about, there's a really great network called Trek FM. They have really great uh, content. And I'm a big expanded universe guy, so I love Una McCormick's work. I love how the Cardassians were expanded in the, uh, in the expanded literary universe. So when I found out that there, were, there was an entire podcast talking about uh, this universe, I was like, great, let me listen to it. And then through that, I discovered, oh, there's Warp 5, there's The Orb, there's Earl Grey, there's Standard Orbit, there's, you know, there's a show about you know, the music of Trek, right? So it really was able to satiate my appetite and in a lot of ways, was an incubator for my fandom. Like it, my fandom grew even more listening to the shows, right? So, 
And from there, I think, you know, finding the Babel Conference and from there becoming a patron, I think, uh, led, led me here. But I think a lot of fans are, are discovering it through, uh, through various avenues too, but I think a lot of them are, are discovering how, how great of a group we have online at the Babel Conference. I think a lot of people are discovering uh, the network through Patreon or uh, through other avenues and through outlets. So I'm certainly not uh, the exception. Well, we're actually we're really glad you're here. We um we're excited for you to uh to work on the content for us, and um, we are uh, welcoming you with open arms into this Trek FM family. I know that uh, Christopher Jones and Matthew Rushing uh, they helped me um, get up to speed and uh, become not only an associate producer for several of their shows, but um, giving me the the go ahead to become host of this show as well. So. We have a great family here with the Trek FM network, and uh, we're excited for you to be with us. And it was really exciting and fun to talk about Travis Mayweather today, but this is just one of the Trek topics we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. But instead of it being a human being prejudiced against Vulcans because... The Romulans look like Vulcans. The Vulcans are taking advantage of themselves looking like Romulans in order to be racist against Romulans. Earl Grey. So he's got the two armrests, and the right one says little, you know, Ensign, you know, Lamont, and the little arrow. And then the one on the on the left says Lieutenant Commander Data. Like a little arrow. The orb. But when they pull away from that window with Jake and Kira, and they pull away from the station, it's like they're closing the book. They're, they're actually closing the back cover of the book, and it's the end of the story. To the journey! How do you feel, Char, about the Borg Queen? Oh boy. I think the longer that I have watched Star Trek, the more I'm in the camp of, I don't know if I like her. The Ready Room. They want you to come across on Archer's side where he can be mad at Trip, but I have a really hard time being Archer being mad at Trip because... Just think of if we still treated, you know, people of a different race like this. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. That can honestly be the reason they brought Wesley, because Wesley's got nothing else going for him there. I mean, yes, he can lead those kids, but that's just going to be by virtue of his age. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, he's 15 years old. Of course, all the other kids are going to look up to him, at least for a while. And then if he ends up being a total tool, then they won't. Commentary, Trek stars. Yeah, yeah, well, Learning you know. Curve was never meant to be a season one finale. They were going to do the 37s, and then UPN wanted to open season two with it, and that totally didn't work either. Man, you gotta, you gotta say, UPN really ooped it up. Literary Treks. What Jerry Taylor talks about with Catherine Janeway's life is it's kind of a series of her relationships. I mean, she should be doing all sorts of fantastic things, right? And instead, we're learning about her boyfriends. Melodic Treks. But there's a whole host of, of people that appear in Star Trek. As I said, most of it is classic courses. It's Verdi, Vivaldi, Strauss, Trojkowski, um, Harry Kim. The 602 Club. This really does have an impact on, I think, the entire you know, comic book world. Dark Knight, Dark Knight Returns still have a huge impact in the way that people view Batman today. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, 
the Windows podcast directory for Xbox and Zune, or you can stream them from the website. Just visit trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get all the links. Now, this is something new to this show that hopefully will take hold. Um, it's the feedback section I like to call Hoshi Station. Is that a playoff of Tashi Station? It oh, very well man. may be. Oh, man. It That's crossing well the streams, be. Norm. It's dangerous. I know. I know. This is what we do as geeks. So, so on Hoshi Station, um, I'm going to read to you from Angela Russo, who wrote me on the Babel Conference. Angela, thank you so much for writing in. Her topic is, why does DePaul get such a bad rap? Angela writes, people are thrown off by the catsuit. Quote, I was too at first, unquote. But she has a beautiful arc through all four seasons, and not just regarding her relationship with Trip. At first, I thought she was being badly acted by Jolene Blaylock because she always seemed uncomfortable in her own skin. I think that's because I didn't watch the show consistently in its first run. Once I started at the beginning and went straight through, it was clear to see that she was a deeply troubled woman who at times was barely keeping her cool. Her own mother said that T'Pol's emotions were always near the surface. Getting to know the character over the four seasons has changed my opinion of Jolene Blaylock's acting and my opinion of T'Pol. I used to roll my eyes when she was on camera. Now I seek out episodes that are focused on her. I hope that's a decent topic of conversation. Have a great day. Angela, that's a fantastic topic of conversation because I think a lot of fans agree with you. At the first get-go of seeing T'Pol's character, it was striking. Uh, it's probably the most censored way I can say it because she was obviously a, a grab at some sensual uh choices that the the new production team made for enterprise and they wanted to you know titillate the audience Get that if you residual will, seven of nine audience exactly so but um as will was saying before a lot of fans are coming at this show um from the uh from the angle of being able to watch it at seasons at a time and be able to get that consume that content in huge blocks and with weekly series TV, sometimes it just doesn't gel. And sometimes the characters just don't gel over the course of the expectation of the week. But I think that after my third or fourth viewing of the series in total, I agree with you. I think that um, there's a lot of really good subtlety to Jolene Blaylock's performance of DePaul. And I think that they were able to craft her character um, in a way where you get to see a Vulcan um, dynamic that you didn't see before, something that did have a little bit more of an emotional charge to it, that did have a little bit more emotional content to it, because um, as Chris and I talked in a previous episode uh, with the Vulcan mind meld, it allowed the Vulcans to stretch a little bit, and it's always easier to latch onto a character that you can evolve with, and I think being able to do so with DePaul gave us some maneuvering room for understanding Vulcans and then ultimately understanding what DePaul's motivations were. Well, how do you feel about that? I agree. I think it was tough because I, when we initially saw her, she was in, uh, she was part of Ambassador Saval's diplomatic team. So initially, when we first saw her, we saw her in these Vulcan robes, and then, then at some point, she transitioned over to her Vulcan duty uniform. And I think by the time season three, she was wearing, uh, you know, alternating colored, very bright jumpsuits. And I think you know they were trying to make, trying to bridge that that gap in terms of she was slowly uh, gaining distance from Vulcan, from the Vulcan High Command. So you could see, I think by season three, I think she's wearing uh, pips. I think she's wearing rank on her uniform. And I would have loved to have eventually seen her in a Starfleet NX-01 jumpsuit. 
probably in uh, in the teal color in the sciences division. I think it, it's tough in terms of um, how characters initially portrayed. I think there are legitimate concerns about how sexed up a character can be. I think Seven of Nine, I think, really took that to, to one extreme. And I think that's something that I don't think DePaul took it to that extreme. But I could definitely see how um, fans could have that initial adverse reaction in the same way that people would have the adverse reaction to the decon chamber. Because on one level, the decon chamber makes total sense, right? Instead of a perfect decontamination place, you're really going to have to be in there for an extended period of time. You're really going to have to actually put on a decontamination gel. But it seemed like sometimes it was a little gratuitous in terms of how titillating it could be. And I think for a lot of fans that only tuned into Enterprise for a few episodes because it was being aired by UPN on a Friday at 10 p.m. or some other weird time, that if they only saw these glimpses of, of T'Pol being uh, very aloof and being very confrontational with Archer and that she was very wearing a very skin-tight outfit, people could really be turned off by that. And I think if they had waited around, obviously, towards season three, season four, with the arc uh, in terms of her going back home and uh, dealing with the arranged marriage and dealing with the loss of her child in season four, which was just incredibly powerful, incredibly moving. I think people could see the change in the character. Obviously, that could only happen if you stuck around for that long. And I think that was a challenge. Just a lot of people tuned out very quickly. So I think she does get a, a bad rap, but I could understand the circumstances in which, you know, the network was making it really easy to for people to make kind of snap judgments on a lot of these characters. Well, I think you're right. I think they were probably seeing that pretty recent bridge from Seven of Nine character to what they wanted to do to uh, bring that element to um, an edgier and um, a more youthful audience, I think, that they were trying to appeal to. And uh, I think Angela hits it right on the head. It's like, you know what? At first, it was jarring. It was probably not the Star Trek that they were expecting because the entirety of the ad campaign was, you know, this is the time before, you know, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. This is supposed to be this deep space first flight exploration era where, you know, you're thinking of Star Trek meets the right stuff, you know, or Star Trek meets Apollo 13. Something with that really serious gravitas of going out there and going where no man has gone before, like literally. Um, and then you see T'Pol in a decon chamber. And as a fan, you're like, this isn't what I expected. Then you come back next week, and then it's, again, the skin-tight cat suit. And you're like, mm, where is this going? And unfortunately, and I agree with you, I think some people were just like, you know what? I'm one season and out. I don't think this is going to work for me. But because you don't have to worry about uh, the passage of time, um, having to invest yourself, again, at a fixed time, week over week over week, and month over month, and year over year, it has given, I think, a really nice breath of fresh air and a good approach for new fans to be able to come in and say, like, you know what? I can really condense the amount of watching time and really get into this and see if this is something for me. And for all of the new fans out there, and I know that there are a lot of them because you keep talking about it on the Babel conference, stick with it. Because as Angela described, over the course of the four years and being able to watch it in these condensed periods of time, you actually get to see where these characters go, and they actually really do have really good story arcs. Unfortunately, uh, when the series ended and when it was written off, it was a really easy target to pick on. They're like, oh, of course it would have failed. 
because it didn't do this or it didn't look like this or didn't have the seriousness of this. So coming from me and coming from Will, trust us in the fact that this is a good series and they have something that you're looking for if you want to give Star Trek that IDIC chance of just being open-minded about what you're watching. So before I go, I just wanted to thank Christopher again for choosing me to become the new host for Warp 5. It's a great honor for me to be here amongst all of the great podcasters and this new family that I found here at Trek FM. I promise you, Christopher, that I won't let you down and I will continue the mission with the same high standard and high quality that you have brought all of your fans before and all the great podcasts in the Warp 5 library. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference, our dedicated Facebook listeners page. You can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. I'm also a huge supporter of Alec Peters and the Axonar Project, and you can usually find me on the Axonar fan group page on Facebook. And finally, I'd like to tell you that, like Will, I'm a proud sponsor of Trek FM through Patreon, and I am an associate producer of four shows, Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Axonar, the official Axonar podcast. You can visit that website by visiting patreon.com slash trekfm. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here in the Decon Chamber for another episode of Warp 5.